Last night I started to explore the set of afflictive mental states known as the five hindrances. Those particularly, uh, you could say, toxic mind states that really get in the way of clear seeing and that have the potential to get us to think and to speak and to act in ways that are harmful to ourselves and harmful to others. So learning how to recognize and work with these hindrances is a really a crucial skill of this practice. Because unless we understand how to help them release, there's not going to be room in the heart and mind for the skillful states to develop. And we won't experience the ever-deepening sukha, happiness, that is the that this path is leading towards. So in last night's talk, I mostly spoke about the first of these five hindrances, which is desire for sense pleasure. And this is conditioned by the root any energy of greed, any kind of wanting in the mind. So tonight, in the service of balance, I'm going to talk about the second hindrance, which is the hindrance of ill will or aversion. And you might notice right now, if there was maybe a slight flicker of aversion at the idea of having a whole talk about aversion. Because I noticed even as I was writing about aversion, there was just this little background, slightly scratchy, irritable feeling. So by way of reassurance, I'm not going to spend the entire talk talking about aversion. I'm also going to be speaking about the antidotes to it. But first, just to say, uh, as with any of the hindrances, the first step in working with it is to recognize that, yes, aversion is present in the mind. And because aversion is usually experienced as unpleasant, this is usually quite easy. Unlike sense desire, which can have a, a somewhat pleasant flavor to it, aversion is generally experienced as painful. So there's quite a natural wish to be free of it. And we need to be careful not to develop aversion to the aversion and then aversion to the aversion to the aversion because, of course, this only amplifies and compounds and prolongs it. So just coming back to the acronym that I introduced last night from Gil Fransdell, B-E-L-L-A, once we've recognized that aversion is present, the first step is B. Let it be. This is the B of Bella. This means not feeding it, not ignoring it, not repressing it, not denying it. Instead, we simply know that it's there. Maybe we even sort of greet it. Greet it softly. Oh, hello, aversion. I see you've come to visit again. So we remind the version that it is a visitor. We don't immediately evict it, throw it out. But we also don't want to make it too comfortable. So we let it be. Okay, you can be over there, maybe in the corner. And there's a kind of a spaciousness in our relationship to it. And it's that spaciousness that makes the next part of the acronym possible, 
And that's E for examine. So at this point, we might invite the aversion to come just a little bit closer so that we can get to know it better. We might ask it, how are you? And be genuinely interested in the answer. Because if we listen carefully, we can learn a lot from aversion. And the listening that I'm talking about here is that kind of embodied, intuitive listening. So when we ask aversion how it is, at least in my experience, it often starts off by telling us all kinds of compelling stories about how right it is to be aversive and all the ways it should justify its existence. So we'll probably need to interrupt it gently but firmly and ask again, how are you really? And we bring awareness into the body. We pay attention to all the physical sensations in the body that are associated with aversion. And when that aversion really understands that we are going to listen to it fully, it often settles down. And it might start to tell us how painful it is to be holding on to anger all the time. How lonely it feels underneath all of that aggressive energy. How much anxiety it has about something bad happening. And worse than any of that, how terrified it is that we might see through its bravado to the abject shame underneath it. So after we've listened to the aversion, we move to L for lesson. Lessening the intensity of the aversion through meeting it with kind curiosity. And as a support for this lessening, we can again tune into the body and invite any bodily tension, tightness, contraction that we're aware of to relax. And in the same way, we can tune into the mind and invite any mental tension or contraction in the mind to lessen, to reduce. Sometimes we need to consciously withdraw our attention away from the painful thought patterns. Now, as a general principle, we're, uh, the Buddha warned us about chasing after sense pleasures. So we don't want to just automatically go after what's pleasant the minute we feel anything unpleasant. But if we do something with full awareness, it can be skillful means to turn our attention to what's pleasant if we're finding ourselves getting lost in aversion. So, for example, if we've been trying to be present with the aversion and we just keep getting lost in it, maybe we just say, okay, let me take a strategic withdrawal. I'm going to go down to the river and feel the cool water flowing through my hands and listen to the tuis and let the sun warm my back and smell the fresh, clean breeze. So we do whatever we can to connect with pleasant experiences as a way to soothe the mind. And again, it's important to do this without aversion. 
So one of the powerful antidotes that I'm going to go into a bit more detail later on is to find the opposite. So aversion or ill will, we want to see if we can orient instead to good will. And the Buddha offered us specific meditation practices that help us to do that. Metta, the first one of these practices, is a way to cultivate good will. So at times we might try, when we recognize we've got caught in ill will, to orient instead towards goodwill. Not always easy, but sometimes just having the intention to do that can start to just open up a little bit of space in the mind. So I've shared uh, an experience before that I had um, many years ago now when I was sitting my first three-month retreat at IMS in Massachusetts. And I was fairly new to practice then, and after some period of time, I just got completely, almost completely lost in some of the most intense aversion I think I've ever experienced. And it just felt like the mind was barbed wire, like it was wrapped, my brain was wrapped in barbed wire, and any kind of thinking hurt. And everywhere I looked, I just felt irritated, if not enraged and I had this vague idea that I should be doing metta practice but I couldn't even bear the idea of going into the hall so I thought okay go out for a walk and see if you can do walking meditation and practice metta and those of you who are familiar with metta practice you know that traditionally it's taught by reciting phrases that are meant to cultivate this attitude of goodwill. And the phrases are usually things like, may I be safe, may I be healthy, may I be happy, may I know peace, and then eventually may all beings be safe, may all beings be healthy, may all beings be happy, may all beings know peace. When I tried to start doing this, I couldn't do it for myself at all so I thought okay all beings and I started to try and say those phrases in my mouth they just turned to ashes it was like they would come up and just dissolve it was I couldn't get them out I would I'd say may all beings I try again may all beings it was the weirdest feeling But after a while, I let go of trying to say the whole phrase. And I just thought, okay, all beings. That's all I can say, all beings. All beings. All beings. And so I was just stomping along in this really bad mood. All beings, all beings, all beings. But as I continued to do it, there was something about just having that intention And just having that reminder that, yes, there are all beings. It's not just about you. There's more to this world, to this life, than just you and your problems. And it gradually opened out my perspective to eventually come back to balance. And sort of miraculously, by the time I got back to the retreat center, I was in a completely different mental space. 
So for me, there was something there about just having the power of intention, just having that tiny little flicker of intention to do metta, even though I couldn't sort of do it properly, it had some effect. So I experienced in that example the lessening and then the letting go of the ill will. And L, the second L, is this letting go. And the letting go, one important aspect of it in this context, is the letting go of identification. This tendency that we've been exploring throughout the retreat to take our experiences personally, to identify with them, to make them define me. This is who I am. I am my aversion. I am my anger. I am so bored and so on. And then the example that I just gave, I was almost totally identified with a hindrance, but this all beings phrase reminded me that it's not actually all about me. And eventually I was able to fully let it go. And then the last letter of the acronym, A, stands for appreciation. And this is the important step of appreciating how does it feel to be free of the hindrance. Really important not to overlook this. And as I've been uh, emphasizing, we do have this inbuilt negativity bias where we tend to pay a lot more attention to dukkha, to what's difficult, than to sukha, to ease, to happiness. But as Gil Fronsdal describes it, the path of freedom is nurtured by appreciating the times that we are free. When we have been caught up in an attachment, it's useful to value how it feels when we're not caught. When a hindrance is no longer present, take time to enjoy this absence. To be mindful and present without being hijacked by the hindrances is a joy. The relief that arises when the mind is free of the hindrances is a delight. If you can feel the sense of well-being, you'll know a type of pleasure that is better than sense pleasures, better than the energy of ill will. The mind will naturally want more freedom rather than losing freedom to the hindrances. Unhindered attention is a treasure. It's what allows mindfulness to do its most penetrating work of liberation. When the mind is settled and freed of the hindrances, we can look more deeply into its functioning and discover the full possibility of liberation. So again, right now, you might notice, is the mind relatively unhindered? And to the extent that it is, see if you can appreciate that. So as we continue on this journey of exploration, we start to recognize the terrain of aversion more quickly. And we understand how to move through it more quickly too. Until eventually we're able to avoid that piece of terrain completely. And although 
For some people at this stage, that might seem like a distant possibility. We're fortunate that the Buddha offers us two wings to awakening, wisdom and compassion, the theme of this retreat. So, so far, mostly I've been emphasizing the wisdom wing. And it's the wisdom wing that helps us understand how the hindrances come up, how to help them release, and how to prevent them from arising again in the future. The other wing, the wing of compassion, is an equally powerful tool, one that helps prevent aversion from coming up in the first place. But if it does come up, it helps it to release. And with repeated compassion practice, it acts like a kind of boost to the emotional immune system so that it's much harder for the aversion to get a hold on us again in the future. So how does compassion fit into our path? We can see from this metaphor of the two wings that we need both of them to be in balance if we're going to fly. And I mentioned earlier, I think, that this balance, this theme, is seen in the Buddha's teachings on the middle way. The middle way between the extremes of self-indulgence on one hand and self-torture, self-mortification on the other. And as most of us know, I think, self-torture is not... At least physically, it's not common as it used to be in the Buddha's day. But uh, Joseph Goldstein, one of my teachers, has pointed out that these days, psychological self-torture is very common. I'm not sure what it is about our society, but we seem to be producing or... Um, not producing, but... It's very common for people to have all kinds of self-aversion, inadequacy, perfectionism, idealism, deep feelings of not being good enough, deficient, and so on. And so compassion can be a powerful antidote to that. It's also a powerful antidote to the reactivity we can experience when we're invited to come out of self-indulgence. You know, it's pretty much our default setting that we put most of our effort into change, chasing after uh, pleasant experiences, trying to manipulate the world out there in order to make ourselves happy. And the problem with that is that at best it's only ever partly successful because things are constantly changing. And at worst it keeps us dependent on external conditions being a certain way in order for us to be happy. And at times on retreat especially we can see this dependence quite strongly. We want the food to be like this and to not be like that. We want our rooms to be like this and not be like that. We want other people to be like this and not like that. And sometimes when our preferences are not met, it's quite surprising in my own experience how reactive we can be. 
So this process of freeing ourselves from dependence on external conditions for our happiness doesn't come easily. In a lot of ways it's counterintuitive and it's definitely not the message that we get from mainstream society where we seem to be told over and over that happiness is dependent on being young and rich and good-looking and famous and successful and so on. So as one psychologist describes it, marketing executives want us to believe that happiness lies in a product that will taste delicious, magically fill our bank accounts, or transform us into a supermodel that looks not a day over 20. Our social norms promise that happiness lies in status, accomplishments, relationships, and possessions. We're always on the lookout for the next thing. Once we have the perfect mate, we look for the perfect home. Once we've found the perfect home, we look for a bigger one, or a new car, or a bigger bank account. Once the perfect job is attained, we look for the next promotion, or look forward to retirement, or a new job. We seem to be on a constant and futile chase after the promised land of lasting happiness. So that constant and futile chase, it's painful. And compassion can help relieve some of the pain of that and also take us out of that narrow self-interest. So I've been quoting psychologists because over the last few years there's been a lot of research on the benefits of practicing compassion, how it boosts physical health and well-being in ways that even dramatic positive life events like winning lottery don't. And the researchers say that one reason it makes us happy is that it broadens our perspective beyond ourselves. We know from research on anxiety and depression that these tense and unhappy states are highly self-focused. During stress or sadness, we're usually focused on the things that are going wrong in our lives. So research shows that depression and anxiety are linked to a state of self-focus, a preoccupation with me, myself, I. When we do something for someone else, however, that state of self-focus immediately dissolves. So I just want to highlight just this same recognition of the truth that the Buddha taught, that self-preoccupation is a recipe for unhappiness, not happiness. And I have a few lines from the Tibetan master Shantideva that I capture this truth very clearly. He says, all the joy the world contains has come through wishing happiness for others. All the misery the world contains has come through wanting pleasure for oneself. So again, at first it might seem counterintuitive, but this movement away from self-indulgence or self-preoccupation is really coming back to the middle way is where we can find true happiness. So finding balance 
in terms of wisdom and compassion can be a useful template to look at the overall arc of our practice, partly because we're in the insight tradition. Most of the, in my own experience and in many of the students I work with, the wisdom wing of the practice is often much more highly developed than the compassion wing. So it can be helpful from time to time to just sort of look at our overall practice and see, is there a balance between these two? Because in my own practice, I've seen times where with hindsight, the wisdom wing had got too far ahead of the compassion wing. And it was uncomfortable and unsettling and discouraging until I recognized the gap and was able to uh, work with the compassion wing to come back to balance. So one way we might see this imbalance playing out is in the beginning of the practice when the insights, for the most part, are of a kind of a psychological nature, we might start to see our so-called defilements in stunning clarity. And it can be quite humbling, even humiliating, to start to see ourselves warts and all, as they say. And so we might need to consciously develop some self-compassion to help take the sting out of that clear seeing. And then as the practice develops, on another level, we start to get insight into what are um, the more universal truths, not so much personal or psychological truths, but the universal characteristics of all experience. So I'm not going to go into these in too much detail now, but just to say that insight practice is pointing us to see that all experience is impermanent, it's unsatisfactory, and it doesn't it's not under our control. There isn't a stable permanent self to whom all of this is happening. And again, these understandings are opposite to the way we conventionally understand our experience. So it can be quite challenging to let go of these deeply held beliefs about who we are and how the world is. It can be unsettling. So again, we might need to consciously cultivate compassion to give us the resilience to meet these insights. So those are just a couple of ways that wisdom can get ahead of compassion. At other times, the opposite might be true, that the compassion gets ahead of the wisdom. So sometimes we can go through phases when we're doing more intensive compassion practice when it gets a little out of balance and we find ourselves acutely aware of all the suffering in the world or all the suffering in ourselves and it can feel like we're drowning in it. So this is a place where we might need to strengthen the wisdom wing to cultivate equanimity to help balance out that connection with suffering. We might also need to consciously turn towards the truth of impermanence so that we understand that this too shall pass. Then it becomes possible to taste moments of deep freedom even in the midst of that same suffering. 
At other times, we might try to develop qualities such as kindness and generosity in a way that's a little ungrounded or off balance. So perhaps we get inspired to give up our jobs and go and work in an orphanage in India or something like that, which could be a very beautiful and skillful thing to do if it's done with wisdom. But if it's done out of impulsiveness, impulsiveness, then sometimes the results might not quite be what we were hoping for. So again, just different ways that we want to look and see how is the balance of the practice. And just to name that when I talk about compassion in this context, it's really a kind of an umbrella term for all skillful states of heart and mind, not just compassion itself. And particularly, it's a shorthand for what are traditionally known as the four Brahma-Vihara qualities. These are four specific types of meditation that to help generate metta or kindness, compassion itself, appreciative joy and equanimity. And together, these four qualities are known as the Brahma-Vihara, which is yet another Pali phrase, word, that's pretty difficult to translate into English. Because the Brahma part refers to a god that was worshipped by the Brahmin tradition in the time of the Buddha. And we don't these days have any kind of equivalent for who that figure was. So usually it's translated as heaven, heavenly. The Vihara part of that phrase means dwelling dwelling place or abode. So often the Brahma Vihara are translated as divine abodes or heavenly realms or sublime abidings and so on. And in those translations, I want to emphasize uh, the quality of Vihara as being a dwelling place or a home. Because these qualities of kindness, of compassion, of joy, of equanimity are our true home. They're a refuge for our hearts and minds. And when our hearts and minds are free of the visiting defilements free of the hindrances then we naturally abide or dwell in these qualities and just as with our actual home when we dwell there there's a sense of ease a sense of wholeness and completeness we can feel relaxed and comfortable and who we truly are so we can think of the brahma vihara as our true home And perhaps at times we can touch into and get a sense of that. But at least in my own experience, what I find mystifying is even though I might have at times a direct experience of that sense of being home, I don't stay there. Somehow I end up leaving home. Even though on one level it's obvious that ill will is painful, it's harmful, it's not helpful to myself or to others. Even though I understand intellectually or more than intellectually that goodwill is a much better alternative, 
Still, there are times when, I hope I'm not alone in this, we get caught, well, actually, I do. It would be nice if I was the only one who felt these things and everyone else didn't. But don't think that's probably true. So, we. We still get caught up in various forms of aversion, irritation, frustration, judgment, and so on. Sadly, it's not enough just to have the intention to uh, cultivate goodwill. We need to actually practice it. Because as the Buddha pointed out, what we've unconsciously been cultivating for most of the rest of our lives is not these skillful qualities. Most of us consciously or unconsciously have been strengthening the habits of greed and hatred and delusion. So it's not surprising on one level that we find ourselves going down those grooves over and over again. Because as the Buddha said, practitioners, whatever a practitioner frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of one's mind. So it's this repeated orienting in a certain direction that strengthens that and makes you know the little ball bearings that slide down those grooves, it keeps them going down the same old tracks. So to put it in more contemporary terms, neurons that fire together, wire together. And I read somewhere a few years ago that when they've done autopsies of people with obsessive-compulsive disorder, they can actually see physical grooves in the brain from those very repetitive thought loops. And maybe we're not doing it to quite that extent, but still we are creating these pathways in the brain, in the mind. And the good news is that we can create new neural pathways. Because of the understanding of neural plasticity, we can literally shape, reshape our minds, strengthen the beneficial pathways and withdraw energy from the unbeneficial ones. And this is where the Brahma-Vihara practices have such a powerful role to play. So one aspect of the Buddha's teachings that I'm extremely grateful for was that he didn't just say, be kind, and then leave it at that. He gave us actual meditation practices that we can do to make that kindness more possible, to overcome ill will and strengthen goodwill. So, these four, metta, kindness, compassion, joy and equanimity, one way of thinking of them is, is as different flavors of love. And they all have an interrelationship with each other. They strengthen and support each other. And I want to emphasize that because in my experience generally, if metta is taught on retreats at all, it's the only one of the Brahma-Viharas that is taught. The others are mentioned in passing. Yet in my experience working all four of them together, it's like the difference between a one-ply strand of rope or a rope made of four strands of rope. There's so much more strength when we can develop all of them. 
And likewise, depending on the circumstances, different ones of these qualities might be more relevant, might be more appropriate than the others. And if we just keep hearing about metta, we can develop this wrong understanding that metta is supposed to be the default response to everything. And in some circumstances, that might not be true. So when I was uh, teaching in the prison, the men were often concerned. They would hear metta and think, oh, that means I'm supposed to be everybody's best friend. But in the prison setting, there are definitely people there that you do not want to get too close to. So in those circumstances, equanimity is a better option, or perhaps compassion. So to recognize and respect another being, but out of self-respect and self-preservation, keep them at a safe distance. So coming back to these four qualities, I'd like to read you a piece by the teachers Caroline Jones and Paul Burroughs, who've very succinctly described the relationship between these qualities. They say metta, or kindness, is the love that connects. It's an antidote to all forms of aversion. It's not attachment. If it slides into sentimentality, karuna or compassion brings the heart back into balance. Karuna, the love that responds, is an antidote to cruelty. It is not pity. If it slides into sorrow, mudita, appreciative joy, brings the heart back into balance. Mudita, the love that celebrates, is an antidote to envy. It is not competitive. If it slides into agitated excitement, upeka, equanimity, brings the heart back into balance. Upeka, the love that allows, is the antidote to partiality. It is not indifference. If it slides into disconnection, metta brings the heart back into balance. So in that description, each of the qualities can be used to overcome an unhelpful mind state and also to balance out the other skillful qualities. So you might have heard how each quality slides naturally into the next, but in the end we return again to metta. So if equanimity slides into disconnection, it's metta that brings the heart back into balance. So we come full circle, working through each of these qualities over and over again, a kind of a spiraling journey around and through all four of them, that ultimately creates a force field of unconditional love. And if the concept of unconditional love sounds a bit daunting, it's really helpful to remember that these are practices, they're trainings, and we have to start where we are, and then gradually, slowly, patiently work to cultivate these different qualities of love. So traditionally we do start with metta, 
because metta is the foundation that the other three develop from. And this Pali word comes from the same root as the word for friendliness, my tree. So metta is this quality of friendliness, of goodwill, of benevolence. But it's not the ordinary kind of friendships, the everyday friendships that are usually based on common interests. The goal of metta practice is ultimately to offer this same friendliness unconditionally to all living beings. So in its highest expression, it's completely without boundaries. It's completely unconditional. And that might sound very lofty. And in my own experience, especially in the beginning of my practice when I uh, first heard and was introduced to these teachings, I can't even find the words to describe how much I hated them. (laughs) So metta has this uncanny capacity to draw out the impurities, in quotation marks, And I think that's one reason why many people really struggle with it, because we are presented with this idea of these beautiful qualities, and yet when we sit down to try and orient in that direction, we often come face to face with everything that's not metta. How many people find metta practice challenging? What is it? It's this orientation towards kindness. So like reciting the phrases that I mentioned earlier. Silent. Silent. Well, yes, usually silently. So it's this, it's, we're sitting in meditation and we're just bringing to mind different types of people and offering them well-wishing. May you be safe. May you be healthy. May you be happy. May you know peace and so on. Does it include yourself? Yes, traditionally it does. First and foremost? Not necessarily first and foremost, but definitely equally in there with everyone else. And I'll be saying a lot more about it when we do the actual practice. Okay, thank you. Yes, I'm sorry I didn't make that more explicit in the beginning. So anybody find it difficult who has done it? I see one, two, three, a few hands, four... Difficult people. <laughs> it's easy for easy people and difficult for difficult people. So, yes, not necessarily unconditional love then. So I find that reassuring, and I hope you find it reassuring too, that this is not an easy practice. For myself, it was such a relief when I heard one teacher talk about it as a purification practice which means, as I've been emphasizing, that it's actually designed to show us what gets in the way. So if we do sit down to try and cultivate metta and find all those opposite qualities coming up, that's actually a sign that it's working. Because unless we see them, we can't do anything about them. So in the beginning, the metta practice might involve a lot of cultivating metta for the non-metta. And this is okay. I think of it as a practice of listening 
to ourselves, listening to our hearts, listening to our minds, and trying to tune into for the faintest flicker of those qualities. And just the recognition of them can help strengthen them, bring them to life. So the importance of having the intention is crucial. Whether or not we get the result, whether or not we feel oceanic bliss is irrelevant. It's the fact that we're setting that intention and strengthening that intention that's important. Because if we're doing the meta to try and feel something pleasant, it's not unconditional. We're doing it with an agenda and that often gets in the way. So we need to have patience and trust that the more we can orient to these little flickers of metta, the stronger they'll become. So I sometimes use the metaphor of the Hubble telescope, you know, this thing, this mechanism, very sophisticated piece of technology that's searching through the universe. I thought it was searching for the faintest signs of life. It's doing something like that, but a physicist told me recently that's not fully accurate. But never mind, give me some poetic license. You can imagine this device that's scanning out into almost into infinity, looking for life. And sometimes I feel like my own Hubble telescope is looking into my heart and trying to find the faintest flickers of kindness, of compassion, of joy, of equanimity and when it finds those signals it beams them back into consciousness and that making conscious helps them to get stronger and to grow yeah that you could say that you're in you're looking for what's actually already there but perhaps covered or distorted by greed hatred and delusion basically so if we can start to clear the greed, hatred and delusion, there's literally more space in the heart and the mind for these qualities to start to shine. Does that make sense? Mm. Mm? Well, first to say this. this yes. Is yeah, go ahead. Yeah. First to say this. If you're having a really black day yeah. and everything sucks, yeah. And like the day you were talking about, when you couldn't get the words out of your mouth. Yeah. So all you did was found um, that little thing, whatever it was. Yes. And it only focused on cultivation. Yeah. There was nothing to do with any black or any of those other hindrances yeah. coming in. So it was a sole focus on... Yes, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. So I was just trying to keep bringing my awareness back to that little flicker of something that was not the black barbed wire mind. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Because where we put our attention is strengthening the pathways. Yeah. With our thoughts, we make the world. So, yeah. Thank you. Is it your heat that's looking into your heart? Is it? That's a very good question. 
Is is it my head that's looking into my heart, or is it my heart? Is it my heart that's looking into my heart? It depends how we um, conceptualize the mind, the the body, and so on. I'd say maybe it's a more intuitive. What I keep trying to point to is this more embodied, intuitive kind of listening and receiving quality where it's actually located I'm not exactly sure Can I ask a a question about aversion? Sure, how about I just let's just finish the talk and have a moment of silence and then we can move into more open discussion, is that okay? Sure Okay So I just like to invite us to take a moment to breathe. And even right now, turn that Hubble telescope into the heart. And see if there is Any flicker of metta, kindness, compassion, joy, equanimity. And see if that little flicker might get just a little stronger. So that you can feel its warmth. Begin to expand and radiate outwards and include everyone here in the room with you today. This warm heart energy continuing to expand and ripple out. to include all beings everywhere. May we know peace. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.